Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, when it comes to movies, Andy, you're a real Democrat. <laughs> it's Michael Curtiz's 1942 film, Casablanca. Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I was willing to shoot Captain Rhino, and I'm willing to shoot you. You knew how much I loved you. How much I still love you. I know a good deal more about you than you suspect. I know, for instance, that you're in love with a woman. It's perhaps a strange circumstance that we both should love the same woman. Andy, I'm dizzied by the fact that it's taken us, nay, how long, eight years to talk about Casablanca on the show? It's been a while. It has been a while. It has been a while. Uh, Casablanca, it gives us the opportunity to talk about some great music, to talk about um, uh, uh, Michael Curtiz again, uh, Max Steiner's music, to talk about all of the great stuff that goes into this movie, least of which is, um, you know, the theme, the the center to our theme for the next set of movies, uh, Ingrid Bergman. But most importantly, the WB classic, Carrot Blanca. Did you did you watch this? I've seen it. I have not watched it recently, but I'm I'm thrilled that uh, you finally get the chance to bring it up. It's possible I I have watched this more than Casablanca. It's shorter, so that's in its favor. But it, when he says, <laughs> first of all, in general pandemonium, Yosemite Sam gets out of the car and he has a little st- stairs that come out of the car, and it's an escalator. That slays me. But when he says, "We'll always," she says, "We'll always have Pismo Beach and Timbuktu," and blah blah blah, it goes on and on about <laughs> this stupid thing. And then the, the plans are funny nose and glasses. On, man, it's genius. <laughs> Carrot Blanca, that Mel Blanc. That's good. He's stuff. amazing. Good stuff. Uh, what'd you think? You just uh, you just wrapped up watching it as we talk about this. What, how did it hit you? It's good. I mean, this is one of those classic films. It's uh, and there's a reason. And it's so funny because I was really thinking about it this time as I watched it. It's like this is one of those films that is always on people's top lists of you know just of the kind of the best Hollywood films and all that sort of thing. And I'm like, okay, so what is it about this that's that's really standing out as as special? And the right. story itself doesn't uh, – it's nothing too unique. And I think even at the time, the people making it didn't think it was anything that was that different from other you – know, kind of the other Hollywood stuff that was going on out there. I think for me what it is that really stands out is the script and the characters. The way that everything is written stands out because the dialogue has a real snap to it just constantly. And the way that the characters kind of just interact and unfold and 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 react with each other, it, it all kind of just creates this, this feel to the story that I think really lends itself to this uh, kind of uh, just uh, – I don't know, just it it's it creates like this this perfectly formed story that just 
as it's unfolding, you just kind of can't help but just kind of go along with it. And I, you know, I, I think some of it may fall under the umbrella of of cliche and and cheese, but because it all is of the same world, it ends up never becoming a problem. I, I don't know. I just think it's really smart. The other thing that I think works in favor of the movie is just straight up the casting, right? That I think Humphrey Bogart as Rick Blaine and Ingrid Bergman as Ilsa Lund and Paul Heinrich as Victor Laszlo, right? These three uh, as as our central trio are so perfectly cast to deliver the snappy text, uh, the, the snappy lines that they have in their mouths, you know, like it just works every single time. And you can see when it starts to wane, at least to my eye, as soon as we get in the flashback uh, area where, where we get uh, uh, Rick and Isla back in... Uh, uh, back in France, you know, and they're having the time of their lives. And Rick starts to sound like a babbling idiot when he starts talking about marriage. Why we get married? Well, maybe you could get, I mean, we could, I mean, you could. And he starts to sound really bad. And I think that had, had that been our principal character, we would not have liked this movie very much. Like that guy, he, he's not built. Humphrey Bogart is not built to carry those kind, to carry that kind of character in this movie. He is designed to be, uh, uh, you know, hard Rick and just crushes it as hard Rick. He is the ultimate fantastic expat uh, and, uh, you know, reformed uh, do-gooder. And and I just I just adore what what he brings to it. And, And, you know, same with Ingrid Bergman and Paul Heinrich. I mean, his Victor Laszlo is such the the you know, underground leader and uh, the the way his story kind of plays out, that the way they lay out his history for us on screen uh, so slowly and patiently, but until we realize maybe he's just a journalist. No, maybe he's, there's always something more with every scene. We we learn a little bit more. The casting is just absolutely perfect to the beautiful sort of onion that is each of these principal characters. I just love it. And of course, Peter Lorre as Ugarte uh, that is is just it, it's short but ugh what a dirty little crook he is you mentioned all them but the one who stands out to me is possibly my favorite more than any of the others is Claude Rains as uh, as Louis I as think Louis. Yeah. he is just brilliant and the way that he kind of uh, plays off of Rick and the way that he plays off of uh, Major Strasser and and just kind of is always this guy who is just you know in it for himself as much as Rick is but he's also as he says he he goes where the wind blows you know he's just you know if it's if it's the French uh, who are ruling then he'll side with them if it's the German he'll side with them and he's he's the captain of the of the police here and he does what he needs to do but at the same time he's you know he, he's a great player and watching him navigate just everything the way that he has his conversations he kind of has his you know his CD business on the side that he has where he's he's kind of uh, you know, uh, betting, bit betting women to yeah. to get there so that they can get their their uh, letters of transit. I mean, it, it's he's you know certainly has found his ways to abuse the system and and does it as as much as he can because he's in that position of power. It it is kind of sleazy and gross, but with Claude Rains kind of playing that role, just the way that he does everything in it, I think is just uh, it's really just. 
just clever and and fun, and I just love watching him. Is it weird that we're talking about Claude Rains as clever in, and fun in what he does? Like, this this walks the line for me as one of those portrayals of um, that that is that could be dated because there are no consequences for his flagrant abuse of power in in this thing right there are just no, no. consequence the consequence is hey uh rick you let her go and i liked her so stay out stay in your lane when the next one comes around like those are the consequences and that i find is uh, you know it's gross and and so it's the thing that is that is dated for me in this movie that just really it, it sort of uh, it it sort of plays its hand early it, yeah, I mean, yeah, it does. It's, um, I, I don't know. I guess it's one of those things that it doesn't bother me just because it's the story where it allows for those sorts of things. And it's, yeah, you end up kind of rooting for this kind of disgusting character because, I don't know, it's just he's despicable in so many ways. And it's just, it's one of the many ways he's he's lovably despicable. Well, he is. And, and I, I get that. He's one of those characters, though, that, like, you never quite know. Like, he, he is so... Uh, chaotic neutral, right? Like y- you know that he's going to do what is ever whatever's best in his self interest, and uh, that is in contrast to Rick, who is you know I'm uh, we'll say chaotic good, right? So he's he he ultimately um, like the way he navigates the complexities of of the whole gambit that takes place in Casablanca, it, it ends up putting him in a position to do good in the world right to end up sort of subversively joining the underground to to fight the nazis and and do it in his way where his gifts are are most sort of suitably used i never get the sense even though ultimately louis does the right thing the context is such that tomorrow louis would likely do the wrong thing if it was you know not in his self-interest yeah i mean there's a little bit of that i mean i'd like to think at the end as they walk off together with the whole, you know, it looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship line. I feel like, you know, maybe they've both changed a little bit and this might be the start of them working together. And I, I don't know. That's how I've kind of read it is that there's a little bit of change for both. I should reprogram the headcanon because he's always been like as much as I like him as a character, uh, I, I don't think he comes uh, you know, I always walk away from the film thinking, OK, he is becoming a useful pawn for Rick. That's what happens after this movie, right? Mm. That this the next thing is Rick is the beginning of a beautiful friendship because I'm Rick and I know exactly where my relationship stands with Louis. It is just cemented that I can use him I, if I can as long as I can afford him. Yeah, right. And right. Uh, and and that's uh, sort of grim stakes. Um, but the, the other one that I that I honestly did not think you were going to say that Louis was the favorite of yours. I thought you were going to be talking about Senor Ferrari. He's uh, just not dear in Sydney enough, Greenstreet. But I, I do I love know, him. But you yeah. love him, right? I do. He's just he's not in it nearly enough to be somebody that really that stands right, out. I mean, whereas I mean, Louis's in it the whole time. But the yes, I, time. I do love Sydney Greenstreet. He's always great. And it's nice seeing all these guys reunited after, uh, well, not all of them, but, you know, uh, Bogart and Greenstreet and Laurie all reunited after Maltese Falcon. Yeah. One of a number of times. I mean, they, they're in a number of projects together. We buried the lead a little bit, right? Because this, we're doing this because we're doing this series uh, about the fantastic Ingrid Bergman. How did this come up? Do you want to set up some backstory? 
Ingrid Bergman is an actress who has stood out as kind of one of the kind of classic actresses in the Hollywood system and and uh, on an international stage because she isn't from Hollywood. You know, she is from uh, Sweden. And and just looking at her films, I mean, she's done such a variety of films and she's had kind of a little bit of a tumultuous career as well. And so I think it's interesting to kind of look at a wide swath of her films and just kind of talk about her and her films and just try to get a sense of her and really what she's bringing to the screen. And this is a series that we largely built from our uh, from our Patreons, uh, those who are supporting us on Patreon and, uh, you know, voted. We put together a poll and and had people vote as to which films of hers they wanted to see. And and we picked eight. And this was, uh, I think, by far the, the number one pick that everyone wanted to talk about. And I think certainly one that we were both excited to talk about as well. And I, I think when we built this series, we were pretty convinced that no matter how things landed, we'd end up talking about this one. Yeah, it was it was pretty high on the list um, and really great to see also of all of her films. I, my sense is it's the one with the highest degree of notoriety. Would you agree with that? I would think so. I mean, the ones that ended up getting picked, I think, largely are some pretty big ones on her list. Um. But, uh, you know, there's a few in here that I think uh, kind of were nice surprises. So it's, I think it's all going to be uh, fun to talk about. But certainly, I feel like even touching these eight films, it's still only touching the uh, the tip of the iceberg as far as what she's done. You know, we could certainly revisit her and look at more films in her career because she's got, I mean, 47 uh, film credits. So she, there's plenty of films to talk about still. So now we move to uh, Ingrid Bergman as... Ilsa. Uh, it is it, it like, uh, you know, really shining light on what I love about this film. We we get the slow unveiling of her role and her place in Casablanca. Um, what's your what's your sense of her performance here? She lights up the screen. There is this this beauty that she has that um, you can see why uh, Humphrey Bogart would have fallen in love with her. You can see why uh why uh Paul Henreid would have fallen in love with her there's just something that has this magical presence about her and just the way that her eyes light up the screen i mean she's she she works so well in this story that you know if you if you look at it uh, just kind of in a cursory sense it feels very soap operatic it's this love triangle and you know you know she was married and she thought her husband was dead but and so she fell in love with another man and and just as they were to leave together uh, she finds out that her husband is still alive, and so she has to go back to him because he needs her and leaves this other man in the lurch, and then they run into each other. And it sounds so dramatic and and like just, just like every eighth grade romance. It's like right. It's a total romance novel. I mean, it really is. And I think that's why nobody was really expecting much out of this movie. They thought it was just a pretty typical Hollywood product. But when you put somebody like Ingrid Bergman in this role and you have kind of that sense of loss and love uh, behind every look that she's giving throughout this film, it really just makes sense why this film ended up becoming a classic and has has stood the test of time. She really uh, just kind of created this role that became so much bigger than just uh, than just, you know, the way that it was written. 
And I think that's really her strength. Uh, likewise with the rest of the cast here. And again, it goes back to the script. They wrote it so well. Uh, but man, when you put somebody like Ingrid Bergman in it and and she's performing these lines and she's listening to Sam play the piano, I mean, it 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 moves you. It really does. From the moment she's, she kind of, you know, sits down at the table, um, there is that sequence, too, when she first sits down and, and uh, is asking Carl about, you know, Rick, Rick, who's what Rick? That's the only place in the film that I think, ugh, I kind of wish she'd been a little bit more concerned in that scene, right? It's played as so, um, like, just genuinely uh, blindly curious that there's no sense for me that she actually is worried that she's going to run into that Rick, you know? Uh, and and so that from from then on out, it's smooth sailing. But that scene always confuses me. As any time, many times as I've seen it, she just plays it as so ignorant uh, as to where she might be when she hears these two names that after we see the flash, flashback, feels like those should be burnt in her memory. It just feels a little bit too innocent. Am I alone? Um, I think you are. <laughs> <laughs> I no, I mean, I to to a certain extent you are. I I see your point, and I can I can get a sense of what it is that you're saying. And I guess I guess I always read the way that she plays the scene as being very guarded, and she's just keeping her feelings close to her vest and and you don't really get a read that she you know she knows exactly what she's in for right now she knows you know she's just entered this world that is populated by these two men that she knew back in paris um i uh, but i i don't know i i guess i just always have read that she's just very cautious and and you're not um, you're you're not. She's basically not revealing anything. And well, also she's sitting right next to her husband. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's uh, all part of it. And so yeah. I guess that's why it works for me. But I can see it. I can see that where you could read it the other way. Other than that, she's amazing. And through all of the turns and the unveiling for her, as she she slowly sort of reveals and we learn through flashback the the nature of her story with Rick the nature of Rick's um outsized love for her uh and the tragedy that you know befalls her when she discovers the relationship tragedy that befalls her when she realizes she has to make that choice and so we get the the lonely Rick uh at the train station uh, sequence, which is not only just a wonderful part of the flashback and a wonderful part of of you know wonderful scene where he's alone in the rain and we get the the rain drenched letter that Sam brings him and and uh, and then the the train moves off into the steam as we transition through time again. Uh, it, it is just a, a lovely uh, example of just kind of her journey and how beautiful it is on screen. Yeah, it really is. The last time we talked about the opening map setups in movies, it, I was God. dying to recall. Probably Raiders. Have we seen anything like that in another film? I mean, maybe we have. Man, I don't remember, but it it just it struck me 
at just what an homage uh, this movie is to Raiders and Spielberg and and the things that that he does. Or the other way around, you perhaps. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it, it is inspiring Michael Curtiz through time uh, to watch the great films of Steven Spielberg. Uh, but to to watch that opening map set up and the the sort of hearing the news reports and then to be introduced to Casablanca the way we are right we get a very personal sort of moving camera through the crowds through the streets uh, through the cafes uh, as we see the the pickpocket make his way through town uh, it it is just a a beautiful way to introduce us to this um, sort of thriving, you know, port city uh, and gets us into uh, into Rick's. Yeah. And what's what's cool about that, obviously, if you watch this film, I don't know, I for me, I guess uh, it's become apparent that it's very clearly a studio film, like it's shot on a lot uh, on the stages and everything, like nothing about this other than maybe some like some B-roll shots uh, stands out as anything that was shot on location. It just feels mm-hmm. very much like a big set, which is fine. That totally is kind of of the era and it works really nicely. But what was, I think, pretty interesting and and to the point you were just making is that they actually cast a lot of people from all over uh, Europe and all these people who were kind of displaced. And this, this film was a contemporary story at the time it was getting made. It was, it was during world war two and this was, you know, released in 1942. It feels very contemporary with everything that was going on with all the displaced people in like all throughout Europe and how they were kind of scattering around the globe and everything. And, you know, they, when you have a scene, like when it's the, the, the dueling songs, when the Germans stand up and sing their, their patriotic song and then you have Laszlo come down and start singing Les Marseilles and and everybody kind of stands up and just jumps in and and joins in and sings uh with him and you have the tears flowing and everything it you get this sense this real sense that these are people who have been through this real thing that was going on that is really splitting people up and that is uh you know breaking homes and 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 you know people are losing their sense of place and i i don't know i just i really liked that they actually went uh and i don't know if it's intentional but they went to lengths to kind of ca- cast a lot of people who were uh displaced from different parts of europe to kind of play all these different people hanging out in this bar so that when you have scenes like that it just feels really authentic and it really hits home I know that scene means more to watch it now knowing that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a great scene anyway, and it's architected beautifully, and it gives us a chance to see just how brave Laszlo is, knowing how precarious his place is in Casablanca at that sp- particular time. Uh, but the the sort of dual uh, intentions of the film, uh, to have these people performing that song there... Uh, it also, you know, ties to the fact that this film was pushed because of, um, you know, the war going on at the time. It was pushed into uh, release in 1942 when it was because they were trying to make good on some of the news uh, about 
the war. I think that's another really interesting uh, connection to this thing. And it makes, again, that scene so fascinating for me. Let's talk then about a uh, about the letters, the letters of transit. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, the letters, the letters of transit. Now, these uh, letters are were taken by or were offered to Rick by Ugarte. They are presumably signed by, as I understand it, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, there is some controversy there. May have not been been signed by de Gaulle. May have been signed by somebody else. Either way, none of that really matters. They are letters that are given to Rick that are the get out of Casablanca free cards for two people to escape without any questions asked. Right. Uh, and they are a useful tool in the narrative. What do you think of the letters? Well, it's it, what's great about the letters is that it's it's a useful tool uh, because it is just obviously a uh, plot element of a guffin that we need to have in there to to kind of get our characters from A to B so that we can kind of uh, make the story move forward. But they also allow us to explore the characters, and that's that's I think the the great thing about these letters. We get uh, obviously quite a bit um, about the letters as it revolves around uh, Rick and uh, Ilsa and Laszlo because they're the ones who really need them so they can get out and so that he can kind of keep uh, keep uh, you know pushing for his uh, for his revolts and everything in a place where he can do it safely and not end up in another concentration camp that would be that would be of principal interest yes the concentration camp part yes that would important. be yeah. <laughs> So that's uh, so it's nice to see how it kind of shapes their relationships, you know, the the desperation that they have as they're trying to get them from Rick and the games that Rick plays as he's trying to not give them to anybody. And uh, I mean, because they're not the first people to kind of ask about them. And, and he pretty much, you know, doesn't plan on handing them out is the way that the way that it seems. And even uh, Sidney Greenstreet's character, he also is is being asked by people to, you know, get some letters of transit. He's like, oh, no, no, I don't want to get involved with you guys. They all know that these guys are it's it's a, a pretty um, difficult pair to try to help. But what I really like about the letters is that it ends up highlighting uh, Rick in a lot of interesting ways because the way that he acts about the letters, the fact that, you know, he lets them search his place, uh, you know, it's the way that it turns into all these games between him and Louis, which I think it, it's really interesting the way that all of that unfolds. Uh, particularly, my favorite uh, point is when when Louis, um, there's, there's there's this young girl who's who's in Rick's bar, and her her recently, um, um, you know, her husband of eight weeks, I think, is losing all their money in the other room. He's trying to get enough money to get these letters of transit, and she's talking to Rick um, because apparently Louis had talked to her and said, you know, we can work something out, and basically she's, you know having a breakdown because she's kind of coming to uh, a place where she's acknowledging she's going to have to sleep with Louie in order to get this. And the way that Rick uh, helps her and her husband by cheating at the roulette wheel, um, I think that was a great opportunity to really get a sense of Rick and that he's not always just this this 
this hard uh, bar owner, but he does have this soft spot and his employees see it and everything. And that's really kind of the place where we start to kind of see a little bit more of the shift in Rick and the way that that things could potentially work out for for Ilsa. And that, you know, there's there's a thing that, you know, he might actually you know, it's kind of nudging us like maybe he is going to do something with these letters. And it plays really nicely as we build toward the end that he and she are going to run off together and they're going to dump Laszlo and all this. And then the big twist that it's actually, no, uh, he's not going to go. He's sending the two of them because he knows that, you know, that this is what she needs and this is what Laszlo needs. And it's it's just so beautifully done. But it's it's all this construct around these two pieces of paper. And I think it's just, it's really smart the way that it all is told. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the whole, the way this this particular MacGuffin allows power to move through the film and allows, ultimately allows Rick to demonstrate humanity uh, through his choices, I think is is really touching. And it's one of those things that that makes the, the use of the MacGuffin, not just the distraction, but the thing that everybody wants MacGuffin, uh, it, it makes it a, a worthwhile, it, more than just a trope. You know, it, it's it's more than the thing that doesn't ultimately matter in the story because the story's about something else. You didn't get it. It is a thing that that allows the characters to demonstrate worth uh, in, you know, when they're on screen. And I think that's that is a, a you know, a really powerfully used mechanism in this film. Right, right. It's it's one of the things we we're talking about. Like to your big question, does this deserve to be the kind of classic that it is? Well, this is one of those principal elements that answers the question. Yes, it deserves to be a classic that it is because it does things that other films were doing, but it does them with a, a greater sense of significance and substance. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, a lot of it's funny because this is one of those movies that I think a lot of critics acknowledge that you know it's not necessarily like a. a great film like Citizen Kane, but it's a right. more beloved film because it's just something that it is a very Hollywood film. I think Leonard Maltin actually says it's the best Hollywood movie of all time. And yeah. I think that says a lot about it. It's not it's not an art film. It's not something that, uh, you know, is, is kind of an obtuse sort of thing to try to get into. It's not necessarily like that well crafted. Like if you look at the the cinematography, I mean, there's some shots that are pretty nice, um, but nothing that stands out as like, uh, you know, an interesting dark noir or or, you know, just some fantastic, like, beauty shots. It, it just feels very kind of straightforward. But in that straightforwardness, it just like everything about it is is hitting on all cylinders. To that end, we should talk about uh, a bit about Michael Curtiz and, uh, you know, possibly in the same conversation, Arthur Edison, I don't know, uh, as his cinematographer. Uh, what do you think of Curtiz? We've talked to him about him uh, before on this very show. Uh, How does he do here? I mean, I think I think he does as good a job as he did back when we were looking at uh, the Maltese Falcon. I think that there's a a very uh, just a, a strong sense of how to tell a story and how to kind of make a story move uh, forward effectively. I think he's really good about that. We I mean we talked about him with. Uh, that film and with We're No Angels. So we've talked about him a couple times. Mm-hmm. And I think in in every case, I think he um, he never strikes me as a filmmaker who is, uh, you know, just 
really kind of playing with what he can do with the cinematic tools. The, his storytelling of of its era feels just pretty kind of studio standard. But I, I think that he is a storyteller who crafts stories with efficiency. And he's, a, he's able to kind of put things together in a way that just that move and are very just effective stories uh, from beginning to end. So I, th- I think that to me is what stands out for, for Curtis as I rewatch this film is it's just, it's very efficient, smart, uh, crisp filmmaking. I, I watched a, a, one of the behind the scenes. Did you see the one that is have leans heavily on Spielberg? Nope. Have you seen there's this there is this particular and it came with an iTunes extras uh, on the version that I have. And oh, I it yeah, is it's Spielberg talking at length about how Michael Curtiz is the the single best how, biggest household name that you've never heard of. Right. Like he should be a household name. And uh, and they go into a little bit about how he, um, you know, how he makes films and particularly his, you know, Hollywood era, uh, working with Hal Wallace at, at Warner Brothers and, um, you know, how he made the transition from Budapest. And he said they they made a, an interesting comment, particularly about Casablanca. He didn't really get what was going on in Casablanca. He took the script and he saw it in pictures. And he he is a, you know, he's lauded as a as a pragmatic um, director, somebody who is just able to, uh, he was hard on actors, but he was able to get them to do, to, to create the images that he saw in his head. And, uh, uh as such, he's, he was hands-on, very tactical or very tactile, very practical. Uh, and, um, you know, I know we're going to be talking about him again in some, uh, upcoming films later on this year. Yeah. Uh, I think it will be interesting to see, uh, how his, you know how his work with certain actors in particular kind of evolves his filmmaking um it, you know the the result of the way he works as as kind of a pragmatic storyteller i find interesting because there's nothing in here that is necessarily like you say necessarily a standout image right there's there's nothing that you call to and say god that shot was amazing. And there were opportunities for those shots. And I just, I feel like I didn't get those shots, the shots that I always remember uh, from movies that I, that I think are so, you know, notoriously visual. That's not this film. This film is, is about these actors. Well, and I think that's what stands out with this film is these close-ups of, of Bogey and of Bergman and, just watching like when they look at each other or, or he's like, you know, uh, you know, drinking at his, at his table and he, you know, has this famous line in all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world, she walks into mine and just the way that you're looking at him. And I think that's what Curtis does well is he's not creating beautifully crafted images like cinematic images, but he knows how to capture an actor. And when you have these actors, you know, performing in a film like this, I think that uh, is going to lend itself quite a bit to getting you somewhere. Uh, so much of, I think, the the gift that we get from Casablanca is how he handles actors talking to each other, delivering great lines, 
at tables, right? So much of this movie is them sitting around a table talking to one another, you know, what is your nationality? I'm a drunkard. Like, those <laughs> lines are different if they're not in Rick's at one of the tables. Like, it's just so, so many wonderful things. And how do you keep that interesting? Uh, you know, you do it by letting the actors do their thing and and staying uh, arguably out of the way. We should we should uh, mention, you know, the, the, we've talked about the script. I've kind of uh, thrown out the quality of that quite a bit. Uh, it's, it's based on an unproduced play at the time by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison called Everybody Comes to Rick's. And then Julius and Philip Epstein, uh, twin writers, were asked to work on it, which they started doing before they um, went off to to war with... Um, uh, who are they filming with? It was uh, Frank Capra, I believe. Oh, was it Why We Fight? Yeah, they were filming some of those documentary shorts during the war. And so while they went off to do that, the studio put Howard Koch on to do uh, some of the writing. And then the Epsteins came back and they continued writing. There's argument about, you know, who really wrote the script. A lot of uh, people say that Co- nothing from Koch actually ended up uh, in the script. I, I have no idea really where that lands but they're the three credited writers um, plus on some uncredited rewrites by casey robinson but it's i think it's just it's really just i don't know just really smartly put together and i think a lot of it also we can't leave out the fact that hal wallace uh, was was producing this and uh for warner brothers and and i think hal wallace is just one of those producers who knew how to find the right, uh, all the right puzzle pieces to put together to make something magical happen. And uh, we've talked about, I mean, he was involved in in, um, the Maltese Falcon and now Voyager, a couple other films that we've talked about on the show. So uh, definitely a producer that's uh, worth uh, paying attention to. Okay, okay, I got it. Are you ready? ready? I'm ready. Hal Wallace on the departure of Howard Koch from working on the film. What, uh-huh. what did he, he, he was asked, uh, Hal, what were you left with after that departure? Do you know what he said? What? Uh, Howard Coke and a smile. <laughs> you get it? <laughs> you get it? Wah, it wah. took me, uh, 45 seconds to come up with that. Yep, yep. So that should tell you something <laughs> about me and the quality of the joke and That's, everything. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> oh, so funny. <laughs> Now, where were we? <laughs> so funny. Oh, you know, it's, uh, where were we? I don't even know anymore. Uh, uh, scripting, actors, were there any other people we want to talk about on the uh, on the acting side? Um, I had a note, just a, one note on Conrad Veidt, who plays Major Strasser. Um, he ended up dying just a few months after the uh, national release of this. He died April 1943, so... At least he got to see it get released. He he was wonderful as Major Strasser, and uh, I, I, they are I, the thing that stands out to me is how they played their entire experience in Casablanca and how he played this is so, um, you know, it, it was so germane, right? These were gentlemen at war, and uh, in, as long as they were in Ricks, it's you know, dogs at the dog park are crazy until they all get to the water bowls, and then all the rules 
go into play. And that's what it <laughs> felt like to me. Yeah. Uh, the other that we, we haven't mentioned is uh, Leonid Kinski as Sasha, <laughs> who's my favorite character. I think he's possibly my favorite character um, in the in the film, just in terms of comedic relief. You know, Ivan, but I love you. Uh, over and over and over again. I think he's fantastic. Ivan, I love you, but he pays me. You know, I, I think he's just just really great. Somebody else we haven't mentioned that we should absolutely is Dooley Wilson, who plays Sam. Sam. Yeah. Yeah. Which is funny because he's a drummer, and so he had to fake all of his piano playing, which I just love that little bit. <laughs> and, and can I just to... say, he doesn't do it very well. I I was I never watch his fingers. I never watch his fingers. So I I, I kind of lose track because I just I love watching him perform. I just think that he he just sings well and just as he's kind of singing with the with the whole place. It just I don't know. There's a vibe there that I love as kind of this this kind of club singer. And I think he you know he holds his own opposite Humphrey Bogart. I think they've got when he's talking to him and trying to get him to leave and stuff. I just I don't know. I just love him. I think that he works great in this film. Well, I think he does, too. And, you know, what's great about it is that he uh, there's sort of a Venn diagram of of principal relationships with Rick. And he is the sort of the first one. Right. I mean, he's the one who worked with Rick the longest. And then she comes in and then Sam is kind of displaced as, um, you know, as we spend more time with Laszlo. But. Every time I watch this movie, I think so his role in my memory is always kind of minimized as the piano player, which is totally unfair because he's he really has been with with Rick for so long, Um, you know, as as they drink together in France kind of takes the sting out of being occupied, doesn't it, Mr. Richard? You know, I mean, those those that kind of of language, I, I mean, it. They have a real camaraderie, and and it's always more than I remember when I watch this movie. Talking about him, we almost have to pair it with the performance of the song as time goes by, because I, I don't think this film would be the same without that song, and I don't think that song would be the same without him singing it. I, like that song just became such a classic. Like every time you hear it, you expect to hear him singing it because it it works so well the way that his voice wraps around it. It's it's a beautiful song. It's Herman Hupheld, Hupfeld wrote the song, and it was actually from 1931. So it was it was uh, quite a bit older than some of the the other songs. But it's boy, it's just a song that is uh, like I don't think about it as a 1931 song I think of it as a song from Casablanca like that is the song you know what's interesting to me did you read this that the song actually came with the play right uh that it was something that in fact I I don't think Max Steiner really liked no that, right right uh, that he wanted this that, that that there was so much attention to it that it had to be attached to the film and and ultimately came to, as you said, to define the film in a lot of our memories. Well, and some of it was that, you know, he also ran out of time. Like, they'd already shot the scenes with it, and he wanted to do something else. But he couldn't because um, by the time they got around to doing that, and I don't know how, how all this came to be, but, but uh, you know, they'd shot the scenes already. And Ingrid Bergman, she'd already kind of changed her hairstyle for her next film project, which we'll be talking about soon. And um, and so they couldn't do any reshoots to do that. So so we kind of had to leave that song in. And so um, so it was what it was. Uh, but it it's great because it also gave uh, Steiner 
a, an opportunity to take it and then La Marseille's the the kind of the French uh, national anthem as as pieces that he could use as leitmotifs throughout the film to kind of alternate the different kind of tones, whether it's it's more of the political thriller side, that's when we'd hear more of La Marseille's, or as time goes by, that would be more of the romantic story. And so it ended up kind of creating this nice counterpoint throughout the score that I really like. I did too. I thought it was, it was, you know, in all this conversation we have about, you know, great themes, it's interesting to me that one of the great themes now stuck in my head is a theme based on the French national anthem that was used so beautifully throughout Casablanca. I mean, it was, it's just, uh, it's beautiful music from Max Steiner. I really love it. Yeah, it's good stuff. Did I say when uh, we talked about Arthur, when I, I name dropped Arthur Edison as cinematographer, did I say that he was one of the 15 founders of the American Society of Cinematographers? You didn't. He's a big deal, in other words. That's all. That's very nice. I just want that to be said. It is on the record. And did you say, or did did either of us say, I don't think either of us did, but when we were talking about Claude Rains, that this is the third of four films that he was in in 1942 that we have talked about on this show. <laughs> <laughs> King's Row, uh, directed no by Sam Wood, and, and now Voyager, directed by Irving Rapper. <laughs> That's really funny. That's right. Yeah. I, big you know, I, big I forget, year. I forget how much we've talked about with him, because he was also in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Yeah. We talked about him there. And uh, I think that may be it. But uh, And then we'll be talking about him again later this uh, later this year. Also, uh, I'm thrilled to announce that we have a new series on the show, and it is the Claude Rains series. <laughs> the unintentional. I love unintentional series. <laughs> I, and we'll be talking about him again in this series. Actually. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so get ready. That's right. All right. Uh, and actually, in Now Voyager, he and Paul Henreid uh, were worked together in that one as well. So they were both keeping busy in 1942. Welcome to the Next Reels Paul Henreid series. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I've been going on and on about the uh, the script, um, as you may have heard on this show. <laughs> There's this funny little uh, tidbit that I do want to share with you that I found um, that <laughs> I think it speaks. I don't know what it speaks to, but it's worth uh, repeating. Um, this was from Film Comment, um, the 1982 issue, uh, or one of the issues in 1982. Chuck Ross. He claims that he actually retyped the screenplay to Casablanca. He changed the title back to Everybody Comes to Rick's and the name of the piano player to Dooley Wilson. And he submitted it to 217 agencies. 85 of them read it. Of those, 38 rejected it outright. 33 generally recognized it, but only eight specifically as Casablanca. Three of them declared it commercially viable. And one of them suggested turning it into a novel. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> this would have been uh 40 years after the movie came out and uh you know that just speaks to the system it speaks to I, I don't know it just speaks to kind of the sense of of story that it is but it just goes to show that a lot of times there's stuff out there that probably works a lot better than people would think it would it just it's all about all the pieces lining up when it uh, when it gets made. I don't think I had ever. I mean, I certainly haven't <laughs> heard of this gag. 
<laughs> which surprises me. Uh, and I hadn't even... <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. Chasm like reject too much dialogue, not enough exposition. Weak storyline. <laughs> it just yeah. uh, well done. I uh, it it boggles my mind that anyone would be brazen enough to do that. Yeah, <laughs> but also that uh, that so many people just didn't even recognize it. Did you see that this was the second time Chuck Ross had done something like this? I didn't see that. Huh? This is the second time he took the book. <laughs> he took the book Steps by Jerzy Kaczynski uh, it, that had won the National Book Award for Fiction in 1969 and had sold over 400,000 copies by 1975. <laughs> he did the same thing. He typed up 21 pages of the highly acclaimed book and sent it unsolicited to four publishers, the big ones, Random House, Houghton Mifflin, Doubleday, and Harcourt Brace. And they all... Uh, rejected the book, including Random House, which was the original publisher. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Wow. I love it. Goes to to show you, it's not always the, uh, uh, I mean, when you're relying on, uh, you know, kind of intern level people to be your readers, these things happen stupid sometimes. humans <laughs> stupid humans oh my 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 do you have some sequels and remakes to talk about and does one of them start with carrot blanca <laughs> well there is that there is that this i mean it is a film that uh, you know it it was popular when it came out um but boy did that popularity grow over time. And because of that, it became a very influential film. Um, before I get to the sequels and remakes, just to say, you know, some of the films that it influenced, I mean, just right away, you have Passage to Marseille and To Have and To Have, or To Have and Have Not, both from 1944, definitely had some uh, kind of elements that they pulled from it. You have the parodies, like Marx Brothers did A Night in Casablanca, Neil Simon did The Cheap Detective, and Out Cold. Um, Also, indirectly, look, we have a movie called The Usual Suspects. Where did they get that title? From this film. Yeah. Plus, Woody Allen made a film, Play It Again, Sam, which is a great, (laughs) it's a weird uh, title for a film where he's pulling a title from a misquote from the movie it's not even a line that uh, that ever is actually said in the film um then you have uh, just a lot of films are are referencing it um most recently you have la la land and allied as two films that kind of pulled a lot from it so it, it's clearly a film that that um, marked its place in time and in cinema but again, because of the popularity, they did start talking about a sequel. One of the one of the sequels that they started talking about right away was called Brazzaville, which is the the town that Renault um, recommends uh, Louis or Louis recommends uh, Rick run off to at the end. That never got off the ground. And then uh, they actually talked to Francois Truffaut about remaking the film um, in 1974, and he was just like, "No way." And uh, there have been some kind of not remakes, but you know, they've it's felt similar. Cabo Blanco and Havana are two of them, not worked very well. Um, weirdly enough, Madonna was actually trying to do a remake set in modern day Iraq, um, that uh, has never gotten off the ground. And uh, the and Cass Warner, who's the granddaughter of Harry Warner, uh, was trying to produce a sequel. 
that would be following uh, Rick Blaine or it, the the search by Rick and Ilsa, uh, their illegitimate son, for the whereabouts of his biological father. And then there was a there was a novel that was a sequel called As Time Goes By. That was a bomb. There were some TV shows. There were radio shows. There were two attempts at musicals. Nothing has ever worked because this film really just, I mean, it stands out so much as its own special thing that it's just one of those things. You shouldn't mess with it. Just let it be. But people keep trying to jump on and try finding ways to kind of recapture that magic. And and none of them have. I don't have any reports, luckily, that any uh, anyone is actively working on a sequel or a remake. Um, so hopefully... There won't be any more, but that's uh, that's about where it stands right now. Casablanca, it's like Casablanca just won the remake fight. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like eventually they gave up, and I feel like there are we're watching that happen with other movies right now. Thank God, at least this is proof. People this is proof that there are movies that stand withstand the test of time. Yeah, and you don't need to remake it. Just you let don't it be. need to. Yeah, let it be. Let it be. We're yeah. going to be having this conversation about. Uh, I don't know, 70 years about uh, Will Smith's Gemini Man. And uh, <laughs> just you wait. Called it. Called it. <laughs> well, is that the one that people will just keep remaking? Yeah. They're just going to keep remaking. And eventually, uh, this is the one that's going to win. I thought you were going to say A Star is Born because we just talked about that one. I don't times. think that. Uh, yeah, I don't think that will win at all. I think they're going to keep, keep <laughs> making just keep it. Going, and, right? Hopefully, it'll just keep getting better. Who knows? Uh, yeah. How to do at award season, this one. This was a really uh, kind of a tricky one at award season, which is it's kind of funny because, I mean, it's it's a very popular film. It did well for itself. The film was released in 1942. It had a, well, I should say, it had its premiere in 1942 and um, in, in November. And... So then they, um, uh, but then they didn't release it until 1943 nationwide. Now, nowadays, I feel like if that happens, that they would go with the 1942 release date. Well, for whatever reason, in this particular case, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences said, no, it was actually, it nationally released in 1943. That's the one when we're going to, uh, put it into those awards. And so it, uh, yeah, so it it had like a very long theatrical run before it actually got around to the the awards. And uh, it's, it's just kind of one of those funny things, but it did well for itself. It had eight wins, nine other nominations at the Academy Awards. Um, it won Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Writing for the Screenplay. Um, Humphrey Bogart was nominated for Best Actor, but he lost to Paul Lucas for Watch on the Rhine. Um, Claude Rains was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Charles Coburn for The More the Merrier. The Black and White Cinematography was nominated, but lost to The Song of Bernadette. The Film Editing was nominated, but lost to Air Force. And the Music Scoring of Dramatic or Comedy Picture was nominated, but lost to The Song of Ber Bernadette. Also, because of that weird 42-43 thing... It ended up just missing the cutoff for the first Golden Globes, um, which were in 1944, four films from 1943. But in their case, they considered it a 1942 film. Who knows? Well, what a mess. Why do we <laughs> really watch this stuff? Why do we right. even care about that? Because uh, it's fun. That's why. <laughs> oh, that's why. Now, when what's funny about this is normally it's the producer who goes up on stage when a film 
um, wins uh, for Best Picture. In the case of this film, um, Hal Wallace, he was ready to go up on stage when Best Picture was announced, but the studio head, Jack Warner, got up and rushed up to the stage, um, as Hal Wallace says, with a broad, flashing smile and a look of great self-satisfaction. I couldn't believe it was happening. Casablanca had been my creation. Jack had absolutely nothing to do with it. As the audience gasped, I tried to get out of the row of seats and into the aisle, but the entire Warner family sat blocking me. I had no alternative but to sit down again, humiliated and furious. Almost 40 years later, I still haven't recovered from the shock. He was Warner blocked. He was Warner blocked. And he actually left Warner Brothers a few months later because of this uh, this incident. Man. Yeah. So. Entire Warner family. He talks about it like it's just a, it's just a bunch of linebackers. <laughs> can't, I mean, you know, they're movie people. I guess well, those, it was movie, those, movie people in the 40s. Yeah, you don't want to mess brothers, with movie. They, yeah. are, they are uh, tough guys. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, well, as as good as it does uh, at the awards, how does it do at the box office? Well, Curtis had just over a million to make this movie, which is about fifteen point three million in today's dollars. Casablanca was rushed into release, as I said, to uh, specifically to take advantage of the publicity from the Allied invasion of North Africa, which had just happened a few weeks earlier. So it had its premiere November 26, 1942. It went into general release, as I said, January 23, 1943, to take advantage of the Casablanca Conference, a high-level meeting in the city between British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and American President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Casablanca went on to earn $10.5 million in the U.S. and a fairly minor amount overseas, at least that was recorded, giving it a total of about $631 million in today's dollars. The movie has gone on to become one of cinema history's favorite films, and it ended up with an adjusted profit per finish minute of $6 million. All told, a solid performance of a film that no one anticipated would be a big film when they signed on. Worth every penny I threw at it, Andy. Had I been, I should say, had I been alive, I would have been able to make this the first billion-dollar box office earner of all time. If you were alive, yes. I'm had sure I, I only been, been alive. I think it's about time uh, for us to stand up, Andy. Stand up and rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flickchart, it will take you straight to uh, this film where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up to ours. All right. First up, we have Casablanca or Rocky Three. Casablanca. Casablanca. Casablanca or Rocky Balboa. Casablanca. Casablanca. Casablanca or A Star is Born 2018. Casablanca. Casablanca. Casablanca or Children of Men. Casablanca. Casablanca. Casablanca or Groundhog Day. Casablanca. Groundhog Day. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) This is where it starts getting harder. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care for it. I don't I, care for the argument that I, will ensue. I hear you. Well, let's do it. Ready? All right. One, One two, two, three. three. Paper. Scissors. Oh, I'm sorry. Groundhog Day takes it. <sighs> Casablanca or Requiem for a Dream. Boy, there's, Casablanca. There's a pairing for you. <laughs> there's, that's not a pairing, <laughs> is what you meant to say. It's Casablanca. <laughs> 
I will say Casablanca. Uh, Casablanca or The Sound of Music. I'm going to say Casablanca. Casablanca. Casablanca or Mad Max Fury Road. You know, I've come this far. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, boy, such different films. Yeah. I'm going to say Casablanca. There you go. Casablanca or Groundhog Day again? Oh, we already did that no, one. No, I refuse. <laughs> oh, wait, no, I don't. Let's do it. Okay, no, one, no, no. two. We're not doing it no, again. we should. We should totally do it again because you said. What did I say? Because, because I it's it? Groundhog Day, Andy. It doesn't it feel like an omen? We get a second chance. You get a second chance. <laughs> well, one of us has to. I think it's fine where it landed. <sighs> where did it land? It landed at 14. That's great. Spot 14 right. on our chart out of out of 402 films. The right. 97%. How where is it on yours? Let me guess. 20. It's not that high. 100, 20, 100, 200. 100. <laughs> I uh it is at 56 out of 4126, which it puts it at a 99% on my chart chart. Well, it's too low. Mm. As you know, Andy, as you may know, this film had been number one on my flick chart for a long, long time. And then you made me watch more movies, and now it is number (laughs) 10. It is number 10. That bumped quite a bit back. Well, it's mostly because the movies that are now one through nine did not have to hit Casablanca for some reason. Like, I I am sure that Casablanca would have won some of these, uh, and, and it just... They it never reached contact. It yeah. never reached contact. However, uh, I am very happy at a ninety nine percent. I am very happy at five stars. And if I were to go by the algorithm uh, for letterboxcom dot com slash the next reel, I will leave this review untarnished. It will be five glorious, beautiful stars and a giant, juicy, throbbing, beating heart. Wow. What okay. do you think? I, it's probably, I, wait a minute, it's three stars with a heart. No, it's... Because it quibbles. No? <laughs> no, this is, <laughs> this is, I mean, I agree with Leonard Maltin. This is like a perfect Hollywood movie. I don't know if I'd say it's the best Hollywood movie, but it is a perfect Hollywood movie. It is one that I, uh, from the time I first saw it, it just, it won me over. And every time I watch it, it wins me over again. It's witty, it's clever, it's romantic, it's heartbreaking, it's just, it's, I mean, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful film, and I am so thrilled that we have had a chance to talk about it finally. Me too, about time. Mm-hmm. Now, Ingrid Bergman, where do we go from here? Uh, Ingrid, we are not going very far. In fact, I alluded to it earlier. Uh, she had uh, cut her hair for her next role, which was a Maria in For Whom the Bell Tolls, that uh, she had already started working on, which is why she couldn't back, go back in to do the reshoots for an alternate song uh, by Max Steiner. Uh, for Whom the Bell Tolls came out in 1943, and uh, that's the film we are going to be talking about uh, in our next show, directed by Sam Wood, um, starring uh, Ingrid along with Gary Cooper. This is going to be an interesting film to uh, watch. I've never read Ernest Hemingway's book, and I'm interested to see, uh, you know, kind of what I get out of this adaptation from it. Can't wait. Have you read the book? No, I have not. Um, I don't know why. Did I go to a bad school? I, that's what Maybe I, I did. Wonder. 
Maybe I've only I read one one book of Hemingway's, and I, I loved it. But I've just never gone back to read more. And I know uh, a little bit of this one, so I guess I'm curious to see uh, what I get from it. You know what? I'm going to read it tonight. Don't worry about it. Well, everybody, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out our other show, The Marvel Movie Minute. We're talking about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. We started with 2008's Iron Man, but you better hurry because we were almost finished with that one. And then we're going to do The Hulk. Hurry up. What are you waiting? Just go now. <laughs> you can support that show and all of our shows over on thenextreel.com slash Patreon where you can also get access to our weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. <laughs> okay. So, as you can imagine, as you have also discovered, uh, there aren't a lot of substantial low-star reviews about this movie. Is that what you found? No. Yeah, yeah. Unless, like, unless it's just, you know, crappy quality. Like, crappy quality. There was one where the DVD case had actually been stabbed, like with a knife. So there was that. <laughs> uh, but but I think we did manage to find some reviews that are worthy of the uh, Amazon review reading segment of the show. Would you like to go first, kick us off? I would. I would. I've got a two star by Claude Pakla, who says this film has badly aged. This film appears to have badly aged. Old, sentimental, and patriotic rhetoric about the tough guy with tender heart, helpless woman who suffers because she's torn between two lovers, Manichean vision of the good Americans, rather lost French collaborators, and bad, the Germans. Even Titanic seemed much more convincing. And why is it that Humphrey Bogart is supposed to be a seductive legend? I find him dull and devoid of expression, much less empathy. I guess most of the enthusiasm for this film comes from old age men, those who are still <laughs> admiring the patronizing male. <laughs> well, well said. Well said. All right. Are, are, do we fit into that camp yet? Are we? You're, oh, oh, Andy, don't look in a mirror. <laughs> don't. Uh, I have one from Quintus Arias in 2014 who says, a little film that don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Oof. Well, folks, I realize I'm treading on sacred ground here. I'll throw this into the bucket with Citizen Kane, A Hard Day's Night, and The Graduate. Films that are the darlings of fans and film critics the world over that totally elude me. Casablanca is okay at best. It's a fine little drama on its own, but hardly a classic and certainly not worthy of all the praise that's been heaped on it since its inception. I will, however, defend the right of anyone to just embrace this movie as their own. After all, I happen to really enjoy Howard the Duck, a film oh. that I believe has me as its only fan of it in this country. <laughs> I don't even... I don't even know. It's, we're, we're, what... <laughs> 
<laughs> so how can he be both so wrong and so right at the same time that he is, in fact, the only fan of How the Duck? I'm sorry. I don't want to step on one of your favorites. Do you love How oh, the Duck? Oh, my goodness, no. Do I even know? <laughs> that, I watched it a lot when I was young, but... Oh. Oh, my. Oh, wow. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.